It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and there's so much security news that, that we're going to defer the question and answer segment for an episode or two and uh, just get to some of the big stories, including a second look at coin, Bitcoin, the other, the other, the other coin, and uh, a whole lot more all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 432, recorded November 27th, 2013. Coin, patent trolls, and more. Security Now is brought to you by Tonks Coffee. Tonks offers a bi-weekly subscription, sourcing their beans directly from the growers. Tonks roasts and ships within 24 hours, giving you the freshest coffee in the world. For a free sample, visit tonks.org slash twit. That's T-O-N-X dot org slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show where we explain your security, your privacy, and how the Internet works and all that jazz with this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson, creator of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility, coiner of the term spyware, author of the first anti-spyware tool. He's a maven. He's a connector. He's a grand poobah. I'm <laughs> wondering if, how long I can keep talking without him saying, all right, enough. Okay, <laughs> Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. <laughs> so this is another one of these weeks. I, I, As I was putting these together, I thought, why do I feel apologetic that we're not having a Q&A when we have just too much really interesting stuff to talk about? I threw away about half of the things I wanted to talk about. Actually, I pushed them into next week to see how that goes <laughs> because there was just – there was too much that happened. And, and I as I was – Looking at some of these things, there's some things I want to really spend some time on. And I really think the podcast serves our listeners better if we do fewer things in greater depth I agree. that you I that agree. you can only get here rather than just shallow you can get anywhere. Right. Let's get deep. Let's go right. deep. So we got we got some really just, you know, a great podcast, nominally a Q&A, but you know, sorry. What's happening is I did follow your advice, by the way, and have completely fouled up my entire Twitter feed. Um, I saw all but, those at replies. Did anybody get angry at you? Um, only a couple people were grumpy because they liked using they liked to be able to use my my feed as sort of an archival. You know, well, these they, are there's a setting you know, that they can. Uh, oh well, I'm not going to. They can figure it uh, out. Yes, and and but the 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 overwhelming majority of people really like the fact that I'm doing at replies. It's because, so cool that you're responding. Well, I mean, I always have been. I've been doing this, but I've been doing it with DMs, so no one was ever able right. to see the fact that I was actively replying to you know questions that were coming in. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is a bit, uh, this is an improvement. It does foul up that cool timeline that that someone was maintaining so what i what i'm going to end up doing is once i get squirrel and spin right behind me um but my the something i want to do then is to put up a filter page 
essentially a, a, a filter page at GRC so that my statements in Twitter can always be found in one place. So that way we sort of solve the problem. As I, and I, as I understand it also, verified accounts have the opportunity of having that setting you were talking about, Leo. Oh, but not you're ver- not verified. Oh. Nope, never been. So that's the other thing I want to do is see if I can get Twitter to verify me, in which case people would be able to use that setting in order to not see the conversations. Right, right. With me, they can, they can uh, leave mm-hmm. off the at replies. Got it. I didn't realize. It's because you, Leo, are something important. special. You are one of a kind. You can always, uh, well, uh, you know, it, there's also a Gina Trapani's Think Up, which um, will allow well, you to any, distract any stuff. client, any client will allow you to do this, right, too. Right, I mean, you know, right, it's, right. it's only people who are looking at the raw feed, you know, looking at my so-called timeline that now see all the interaction. But, I mean, really, really it's been a huge win and i was just teasing when i said you know i followed your advice and fouled up my my <laughs> timeline well there's a lot on I, it now you know which is good which is good and but, it was always there it was just all private, private and yeah. now it's public and people are loving the fact that they can follow conversations that i'm having with other people so it's like yeah i've been this active but it was just you know on the on the dl yeah sure yeah so no, today, bother me, but I guess we're going to talk about coin again, take two of coin, because now I figured out what they're actually doing. And that picture that you can see on the page uh, reveals it. We've got a big crypto locker update and GRC is now offering crypto locker for forensic experimentation oh, and download. You have a few lying uh, around, huh? The EFF is tracking who's encrypting what. Uh, there were massive man-in-the-middle attacks on the Internet, or not, maybe. Who invented public key encryption? And to look at a very high-profile patent troll case, um, and much more. So, a great podcast. <sighs> I know where you're going with that one. Yep. Hey, before we do, uh, I noticed you uh, you raised a cup of joe to your lips. A little cup, oh, of, cup of coffee. did I? That's why I was a little late, actually. I had to go dump my most recent pot into my little thermos. Yeah. So you don't understand that uh, one of the most important things in coffee is freshness. Uh, in fact, I think you oh, probably... Yeah. You don't let it sit on the burner. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and fresh beans, uh, too, very important. Wouldn't yep. it be cool if there were a service, I don't know, where they went around and they found the best coffee beans, single-source, single-farm coffee beans... Flew them directly from the farm to their roastery, roasted them, and then within 24 hours got it to you so that it is the freshest coffee ever. Wouldn't that be cool? Wow. This is Tonks. Do you know about Tonks? Have I never I told you about Tonks? We have talked about it, actually, now now that you mention what it is. Yes. Seems like this show of all shows, since we are the coffee show. <laughs> but I just, I just posted a link to 13 benefits of coffee. It turns out... For, mo- for the typical Western diet, m- people get more antioxidants from their coffee yeah. than from their diet. Not surprised. Like, Whoa. Drink more coffee. This is a good gift for somebody who's a coffee lover or would like to be a coffee lover in your life. Tonks is a subscription coffee service, high-end, and it's always, uh, what I love is it's single source. So this is, I just got this La Perla del Café Lourdes de Naraño from Costa Rica. So this is a single farm beans. Now, there's an advantage to that, too, because a lot of times, and I've seen this happen at coffee shops. I'll tell you a little story. Beans are, you know, they go to the dock where a broker buys them. 
They get on a ship, slow boat to China, arrive in the States where another broker sells them. By the time it gets to the green beans get to your local roaster, it might be months. And, of course, they have a chance to get moldy in the process. Tonks goes directly to the farms, buys direct, gets them shipped immediately. So the the green beans are as fresh as can be. They follow the sun, too. So you're always getting a, a fresh bean picked recently, very recently, uh, and roasted to perfection. Now, these are medium roasts. Uh, if you're an espresso, uh, you know, they're more for like a, a Chemex or an AeroPress. Uh, I know you're a French press guy, very good for French press. They have, of course, guides to holiday brewing and all kinds of brewing. They have subscriptions. But what we're asking you to do is just visit tonks.org slash twit and get a free sample. What could be easier? It'll come to you as sealed in a package. It's very straightforward. Uh, really high-end coffee, single bean, single varietals. Just a fabulous, fabulous service. Tonks. I want you to try it, will you? Tonks.org slash twit. We thank it for their support. I've been trying to get them on security now because I know there's a lot of people who are listeners who are also coffee lovers. But if you're not, you know, a coffee connoisseur, this is a great way to get into it. So I tip my cup of tonks to you there. Steve. Well, mm. we remember the we remember mm. the commercials with Juan Valdez, yeah, on, you know, and the beans strapped across the back of his poor donkey, you know, <laughs> coming down him. from the mountain. Exactly. I uh, so oh, okay. I, the owner of the Pilates studio that I went to every day for several uh, for a year and a half. I went to took Pilates uh, just recently stopped uh, at this great Pilates studio, but she also owned a coffee shop in San Diego. And a large, giant bag of beans, they roasted, I guess, because it was green, arrived at the Pilates studio by accident and sat there. We we had to step around it for months. <laughs> People would sit on it to tie up their shoes. And the then, burlap bag. bag. And then, finally, she came, she got it, she brought it down to San Diego where they roasted and served it. You don't want that. <laughs> I won't say the name. You don't want that. You want something really fresh, honest. Freshness is everything. All right, where should we start? Okay, so we got to revisit coin. Yeah. Because I was wrong in my clever guess oh, about the idea work. that they were proxying. Um, if, the, if it was impossible to change in some manner the signal that the coin, that, that the strip the mag strip is generating, then my approach was the only feasible one. Turns out you there, there is something that you can do. You're not actually rewriting the mag strip because that seemed unfeasible. But I ran across a photo of the very first prototype that Coin's inventor created. And it's in the show notes. You can show it during the podcast now, Leo. And uh, and the moment I saw that, it's like, oh, okay. Now I know how it works. Even complete with an Arduino sitting <laughs> sitting there wired up next to it. Um, yeah, Coin is really a sideline to what they were planning as a startup. They wanted okay. to license this Arduino technology. Oh, okay. Well, it makes sense. Um I bought one for 50 bucks pre-purchased. You got 17 days now remaining for their 50% discount. Then the price doubles to $100. And I don't have a need for it, which is, you know, why 
I'm not as excited about it as other people. I will probably delaminate mine just because I want to, you know, completely end the mystery, uh, and I'll I'll show everybody the inside of mine. Um, but so so the idea is that there is a there is a a coil in the card, and probably. Maybe th- there are some contacts in the card, maybe a, an, an inertial um, sensor so that it knows when the card is being moved and to what degree. But so essentially it's very much like the, the second loop product that we talked about last week where those, those guys had, a, had a, a magnetic coil, thus a loop, attached to a smartphone and they would bring it within proximity of the reader and it worked in 90% of the readers basically it was you know it was an induction coil inducing a sympathetic current in the read head which the which which the point of sale terminal could not differentiate from the card being swiped so this is essentially the same technology but they've bundled it into a credit card format and given it battery power that lasts a couple years and some smarts. So the idea is as you swipe it, it just it, it uses a an, an alternating electrical field through a coil to produce an alternating magnetic field across the entire extent of the strip. And that's sort of the clever part is is it doesn't really matter Physically, where the card is, the whole strip is simultaneously generating the same magnetic field. But in it, but if it were a fixed set of magnet uh, of of reversed um, magnetic domains, then you would have to be moving the card. Here, you don't technically have to be moving the card because the whole strip is generating this the same field. Well, now that. Then, as I was like reverse engineering this with very scant documentation, um, then the question is, okay, wait a minute. A card actually has three stripes. That is, there's one large magnetic strip, but within that are three tracks. In the same way that a cassette tape used to have, you know, it would have a, two, two stereo tracks on, on one's one side of the tape and two other stereo tracks on the other side. So a total of four tracks. And you, so you, you'd listen to stereo on one side of the cassette, then you'd flip it over and listen to stereo on the other side. So these, so these magnetic tracks are, they're immediately adjacent to each other. They're 0.11 inches apart and 0.11 inches wide. So the question is, wait a minute, if the, card has three tracks that is a regular magnetic card has three tracks but we only have the ability to to essentially simulate one how does the mag strip reader know which one we're generating and how do we determine which one we want to generate well it turns out i tracked down the iso iec specification it's iso 7811-2 and there's like 7811 is the overall spec. And then, then there's dash one through, I think, six or seven, which are the sort of the sub specs, because all of this is covered 
within with, with a set of standards so that you know all the credit cards are the same size they're the same thickness you have interchangeability you know there there's there's broad global agreement thankfully so that we have like one standard for these so-called ID cards and and in fact some immediately upon hearing my original theory for how this worked a listeners wrote back tweeted me and said wait a minute you know that could work for major credit card companies but how could it you know how would you handle loyalty cards and 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 essentially you know local use of cards not global financial clearinghouse and they're of course completely correct because the idea is that this can do all of that so these three tracks differ dramatically in their density and format the type of type of data they contain there's an alphanumeric track which track so-called track 1 which is 210 bits per inch of data carrying 7 bits per character where that's 6 data plus a parity bit and that basically gives you uppercase alpha numeric and a whole raft of special symbols some of which are reserved and as the spec says, the maximum character count um, consists or, or the stripe contain data control start and end sentinel characters and then an, a longitudinal redundancy check character that all together will not exceed 79 characters. So we have an alphanumeric strip at 210 bits per inch that can hold 79 characters. Then there's a numeric track which is a lower density. It's 75 bits per inch, so essentially a lower frequency of recording, and that's strictly numeric. That's five bits per character, which is and it's allocated as four bits of data plus parity. Of course, four bits of data only gives you the numbers plus a few special characters, all of which are reserved for control characters. That's the second track. Then the third is, is, is a higher density but also numeric track. So that's back up to 210 bits per inch, five bits per character, four for data plus one for parity. And, and that can contain 107 characters. So that's the, 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 the largest number of characters because they've sacrificed the number of bits per character running at just five rather than seven, as is the case for the first track. So three very different track formats. Each of the characters has a parity. And then the key is there's, this, there's error detection. We have, as I said, within each character we have a parity bit. But then at the end of the entire track, there is what they call a longitudinal redundancy check, an LRC. And it's nothing but even parity for all of the bits in that bit position. So, okay, so visualize it this way. Imagine that we took the characters, whether they're seven bits or five bits, and we... we we printed them out in binary, you know, zero one 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 zero zero one one, so forth, and then, and then stacked them on top of each other, so that we had we created a matrix of ones and zeros, 
where the characters are on the horizontal running down down vertically. Well, that would mean that the parity bit would be the parity for the row. Well, then the longitudinal redundancy check is the parity for the column. So it's one character at the end which creates even parity for the column. And here's the key. If the if the terminal doesn't see the a, an error-free read in both parity horizontal parity and essentially longitudinal or vertical parity, it simply rejects that track, which means that that the 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 transmitting technology is able to decide which one of the three tracks it wants to send and then it arranges the error correction the the, the both set senses of parity so that it's correct for that track well there's no way it could ever also be correct for the other two so so essentially all three tracks will receive the same data but they, it will only be error-free for the one it was designed to be targeted to. Thus, this single card is able to generate data for any of those three tracks. Um, and I don't know whether cards ever use two tracks at once. That is, for alphanumeric and numeric at the same time, they wouldn't need to. For, for example, just track one, which is alphanumeric, that could contain your name, the card number, the expiration date, and and so forth, easily all all together um, just on a single um, track. So it's probably the case that track one solves the problem. I didn't go any further to look into the international standards of of who was um, you know of, of actually what type of service used which tracks. But that, that answers the question um, convincingly, I think, about exactly how this technology works. It's basically, it's this very similar to what Loop does, but they managed to cram the whole thing into a credit card that lasts for a couple of years, which I think is very cool. And whereas Loop was only able to achieve 90% compatibility, this presumably could be you know, your hotel uh, key card, your loyalty cards, I mean, you know, virtually anything. It's, it's able to emulate uh, the, the magnetic strip on standard ISO format cards. So I think now we know. Yeah, I still wouldn't spend a penny on it, but hey, whatever. Well, it's just, yeah, it's not a problem that I have. I, you know, I've got one card and it works just fine. And, you know, and many people said, wait a minute, you know, mag strips are or old news, chip and pin is where the world is going, and this doesn't do that. So it's like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, although, you know, we were also going metric about uh, 30 years ago. I mean, uh, the U.S. has a long history of being resistant to how everybody else in the world does it. Yes, and, I mean, it's like, okay, what, you know, my, I guess, I guess my my reaction to all the people who poo-pooed this because it wasn't chip and pin compatible was, well, you know, I don't have a single chip and pin card. I don't own one at all. Supposedly, and, that's going to happen uh, in 2015. But again, like I said, we also were supposed to go metrics in 1972. So I don't. 
I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen or not. I th- it should happen. It's a much more secure way of doing things. It's a much uh, preferred way of doing things. And it's how everybody else in the world does it. But so was metric. Well, okay. Now, if you did chip and pin, that is, if you did, how how do you solve the problem of giving the waiter your credit card to pay no. a check? And in Europe, what they do is they come to your table, and I think this is also a very good idea. They come to your table with a card reader. Ah. Uh. And you have to enter the pin. It, it's actually it's 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 called dual factor authentication, I believe. <laughs> ah, what a concept! <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, to me, I've said this before. I'm not going to belabor it. It's a scam. They're taking a lot of money. They're spending that money on advertising. You'll see coin advertisements all over federated media sites like Nine to Five Mac everywhere. Which it it's like a pyramid scheme. I don't think they're ever going to ship a card. I'm I am also. Somewhat skeptical, frankly, yeah, yeah. having having looked at the spec, having looked at there's there there was one site that I linked to. Oh, I forgot to tell everybody who's listening that that the show notes will return to GRC's um, Security Now page. Uh, there's now that I've sort of screwed up. And I, I should really say that now that I've changed your Twitter, you screwed up your Twitter. Go ahead and okay. say it again. <laughs> Now that Leo has ruined your Twitter feed. I'm no longer able to say, go look at at SGGRC's Twitter feed because now it's all full of my responses to people who are tweeting me. Whereas I used to do DMs, now I'm no longer doing that. So I, I'm unable to post, post links in my Twitter feed and use it as my means for communicating, you know, show specific episode related links. Now, it may be that the guy who's aggregating my feed the guy who's at oh, – I created a bit.ly for it, bit.ly slash sggrc. That used to be really cool because he would he would aggregate them by Security Now episode. Um, that's all blown to hell too. But maybe he'll fix it because he could certainly filter them as I intend to eventually get around to doing at GRC. So, But in the meantime, I'm going to now since, – since you're showing the show notes anyway on the air, Leo, I might as well post the PDF on the site i used to do it a long time ago yeah but that way everybody gets the links so so links that i refer to you can get them by getting this pdf from grc at grc.com slash security now where everybody knows we have the the uh the the small versions of the podcast and elaine's um fabulous uh transcripts what didn't fit into the show last week because we we had like a two-hour podcast and it ran off the end, but I wanted to mention it because it was a little bit of an update on Squirrel also. I had a, I got a nice note from a Rick Brooks, who's a listener in Columbia, South Carolina, um, sharing from October 18th, just last month, his a very short note. He said, Steve, I just purchased a copy of Spinrite 6 to use on a MacBook Air. So we know what that means. That means an SSD. He said, on a MacBook Air that had a dead SSD drive. He said, I had already tried every type of scan I could find and could not get any data. The machine would not boot up and the Mac drive utility failed to do any repairs. This was a friend's machine and she had her life on the drive with no time machine backup. She was really upset. After getting an adapter to convert the drive to use on a SATA interface, I ran Spinrite. I put the drive back in the machine and it booted up 
Wow. I completed a time machine backup today, and the laptop is running great. Thanks for the great software. Signed, Rick. And he said, P.S., please get back to Spinrite ASAP. I know you're out saving the world via Squirrel, but you got me waiting on the new release. So please hurry now. So anyway, uh, I want to let everybody know. Um, some people have asked, where is Spinrite? Well, Spinrite is on hold. That is Spinrite 6.1 is on hold while I nail down the, the, final, the final details of SQRL, this login technology that continues to be proceeding very nicely. We have the, the syntax completely nailed down and agreed to, and we're now working on the semantics side, the, the specific like error message numbers and, and the, the details of the interchange between the client and the server. As soon as that gets done, I will write an, a reference implementation that that everyone can use to to check their own in very in their own other languages and so forth, and then I'm done and back immediately to Spinrite six one. Rick, who owns six, and everybody else who owns six or who purchased it in the meantime will get six one for free. So, uh, and the good news at that point is he won't have to remove the SSD drive from a Mac in order to run it on a PC. He'll be able to run it natively. Uh, on the Mac, and again, free upgrade for everyone. So, uh, but there's only me, and, and right now I'm spending full time on Squirrel, and then I will be back to the next phase of Spinrite six one, which will be adding the AHCI compatibility so that it runs across all Intel based machines, and then we'll get it out the door. Um, Neato. There, yeah, there was. An interesting story that that got a lot of press and a lot generated a lot of upset that I'm somewhat skeptical of. Um, we've never covered border gateway protocol BGP in detail, mostly because it hasn't been necessary. We've we've sort of been able to explain what it is. What it is is it's the it's the the language which big iron internet routers use for exchanging their routing tables and routing table updates. You know, we have, we've talked often about, in a broad sense, how the whole internet works by, by just being this loose coupled inter, um, in, interconnected network of routers where when a packet that is addressed to a certain IP arrives at a router, the router looks at its routing table, and, and basically the router is like an octopus. It's sitting there in the middle with a bunch of links going to different direct in different places. And a packet comes into it uh, across one of these links, and the router simply refers to a table that tells it which link to send the packet out of to to sort of to send it on its way that like the idea is the routing table has a coarse understanding of 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 which link is is like the destination lies down 
So because we, for example, with IPv4, we've got 4 billion IPs, there's no way to have, a, there's no practical way to have an entry for every single IP. But we, but we, we don't need that because we know that IPs are allocated in chunks. So, for example, you know, uh, Comcast will have a big block of IPs. All of their customers are within a big block of IPs. So when a when a when a packet in one of the, with one of those IPs lands at a router far away from Comcast, all it all that router has to see is that oh, that's that's owned by this larger aggregator that that from which Comcast buys a smaller portion of their IPs. So it goes, so it sort of aims it at that larger aggregator. So they, the, the, my point is that these, these routing tables are very coarse and for, for a large percentage of IPs and only fine-grained when the router is physically closer to the ISP. It then makes finer grain decisions about where to send it. So the news that came out was that there was like massive man-in-the-middle traffic hijacking going on. Now, unfortunately, this was from a company, Renesis, that sells monitoring um, and sort of like detection protocol and and service for detecting this. So, you know, putting out this press release was was sort of like, you know, semantic telling us how bad viruses are. It's like, yeah, okay, we we know that's bad, but it's also a little self-serving. Um, Ars Technica picked the story up, which is why everyone was aware of it. And, and you know, our illustrious reporter, Dan Gooden, um, he, he said the ease of altering or deleting authorized BGP routes um, or of creating new ones has long been considered a potential Achilles heel for the Internet. And he's certainly right about that. He said, indeed, and we'll remember this because we covered it on the podcast, in 2008, YouTube became unreachable for virtually all Internet users after a Pakistani ISP altered a route in a ham-fisted attempt to block the service that is YouTube in just that country. Later that year, researchers at the DEF CON hacker conference showed how BGP, what we were just talking about, the border gateway protocol routes, could be manipulated to redirect huge swaths of Internet traffic by diverting it to unauthorized routers under control of hackers. They were then free to monitor or tamper with any data that was unencrypted before sending it on to its intended recipient with little sign of what had just taken place. So so what we have is we have a we have relatively good security for BGP, but not perfect. Um, one of the reasons that we want unpredictable TCP sequence numbers is that is that routers establish TCP links. Border Gateway Protocol runs over TCP, and one of the ways of 
hacking into a TCP connection is if you're able to guess the sequence numbers in TCP, then you can spoof traffic from one or another router, which it will trust because the trust is simply the point-to-point -point connection between two routers. But you could, you could, if you can spoof the source IP, with, which you can do with raw sockets, and if you knew where the sequence numbers were, you could essentially insert your own data into a router's table. And in fact, that was done historically. It's the way, it's the weakness that, that early TCP stacks had, that they had predictable sequence numbers in their, their TCP communications that allowed this kind of tampering. So it is inarguable that this is, as Dan, as Dan writes, an Achilles, one of the Achilles heels of the Internet even today. So the evidence, however, because um, what, Re what Renesis wrote was that since February of this year, 38 distinct events have they have detected in using their technology, their monitoring technology, in which large blocks of traffic were improperly redirected to routers at Belarusian or Icelandic ISPs. When they inquired what was going on, they initially didn't receive any response. And then later, as they were putting this, this formal announcement together, they tried again, and the response they got was, oh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, we had some bugs in our routers, and we updated them, and the problems went away. So I think that's probably the truth. Um, but whether or not it is... I mean, it, it seems very unlikely because, I mean, this is very easy to see. If you, if you did a, a so-called trace route while this was underway, you would see your packets heading off, you know, <laughs> to Belarus and then coming back onto the Internet and going about their business. So it's not like this is anything that you can do stealthily. This is, you know, very obvious to anyone monitoring where packets go on the Internet. But it... You know, the takeaway is, yes, we need HTTPS everywhere all the time because any non-encrypted traffic is definitely subject to this kind of a of a of a big iron router, you know, not little home routers, but you know routers that are out there in the middle of the internet moving all of this traffic around. The the whole routing table technology, you know, it works, but it, you know, it was probably meant to be replaced <laughs> and no one's gotten around to it because it's really not as robust as, as it could be or uh, arguably in the, this day and age needs to be. Um, along the lines of security on the Internet, we've got the news, the good news, welcome news from Twitter that they have implemented forward secrecy for Twitter.com, API.Twitter.com, and Mobile.Twitter.com. And we know what that means. That means that somebody decided this would be a good thing to do. And they, just as I did last week, they reordered the Cypher suites, which their, their servers are 
are offering so that they would they would preferentially offer the ephemeral Diffie-Hellman key agreement suites over the the non-use of that the um the the non-ephemeral suites which do use the server certificate in order to um to encrypt the key and what they found was upon immediately upon making this change 75% of twitter's connections began using elliptic curve diffie-hellman key agreement so that is to say that there were all these clients out there already using Twitter's servers that were ready, but were uh, that were ready to, to work with that cipher. But it required Twitter to make the change in order for forward secrecy to to come up to speed. And it's now only very older clients of various Stripe, which you know twenty five percent making connections, which are not using. Um, ephemeral uh, Diffie-Hellman key agreement. So, you know, another company uh, takes security more seriously as a consequence of, I mean, a direct consequence of this general hardening that we're seeing throughout the industry, which takes me to my next bit of news. This Microsoft has joined the group of corporations who are visibly tightening their security. Uh, Just yesterday, the Washington Post carried the story saying that Microsoft is moving toward a major new effort to encrypt its Internet traffic amid fears that the National Security Agency may have broken into its global communications links, said people familiar with the emerging plans. Suspicions that Microsoft, while building for several months, sharpened last month in October when it was reported that the NSA was intercepting traffic inside the private networks of Google and Yahoo, which, of course, we've covered extensively, two industry rivals with similar global infrastructures. Um, They said top Microsoft executives are meeting this week to decide what encryption initiatives to deploy and how quickly. And as we'll remember, because we've talked about it here, um, we did see signs of this in the various slides that, that Snowden caused to be released. Um, there we know we, we saw mentioned that Hotmail's address books were being collected. Uh, there were signs of a, 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 a Hotmail message um, referenced in one of the slides and, um, and apparently also Windows Live Messenger uh, uh, was one of the uh, social networking technologies the NSA was saying that they had uh, access to so my we don't have any timetable yet but microsoft has decided whoops you know uh we need to to follow along of course google's doing it already right i mean yes google well google um they're now working to encrypt their internal links i think everybody is scrambling to do that it's not an easy thing to do but but leo bring up this chart in the next link here the eff they have produced a really nice summary of who's encrypting what and anyone can yes anyone can find it if you google the phrase encrypt the web report so they call it their encrypt eff calls it their encrypt the web report and they are maintaining it they've had two updates so far as of the as as of this podcast and it's a really nice visual grid 
showing what types of encryption are being done and by whom. Um, what, now, you use Level 3, don't you? Yeah, they're my they're, – I'm in a Level 3 data center. Yeah. Yep, they are. And they have been implicated in, you know, in – and because they're essentially they're implicated because they are the largest top level internet, you know, m- you know, major bulk traffic carrier. Um, but anyway, so what's interesting to me, for example, I, I don't know why, but for example, um, in this grid, the EFF has a lot of undetermined under the forward secrecy column. They they show encrypts data center links. Who so who, who does that? Who supports HTTPS, meaning any encryption at all? Um, who supports the strict transport secrecy or security HSTS? Who supports forward secrecy? And for email, who supports start? TTLS. And what I don't understand is why they've got so many undetermined under forward secrecy, because it's trivial to determine that. I mean, you could just, you know, put the various websites into, um, you know, into your browser, watch the protocol um, uh, or any of the the SSL, you know, like, like the SSL labs, um, uh checking website and you'll immediately determine whether forward secrecy is supported or not. So that column should easily be filled in with either yays or nays um, all across. But anyway, there's no so it shows Amazon, Apple, AT&T, Comcast, Dropbox, Facebook, Foursquare, Google, LinkedIn, Microsoft, MySpace, Sonic, Net. I think the, uh, the reason that they're, they, they say undetermined is because these companies haven't responded to the survey. They're doing this based on asking the companies. Ah, okay. We've asked the companies what they are doing, and so if the company doesn't respond, they don't know. So they're not doing any research on their own. They're just this is responses to their survey, EFF survey. So better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think now that we know level three was is provided backdoor links, or at least supposedly provided backdoor links uh, to Google and uh, Yahoo to the feds, um, and Google and Yahoo are encrypting data center links. I imagine everybody will do the same. And if they don't, well, that tells you something too. And this is why, you know, this is why I was so bullish on from day one on the the Snowden leaks. It's like, okay, you know, this is not good for the NSA, but we need to know what's going on. And, you know, we're seeing the upshot. Yeah. I mean, what you don't have. So the the, the links, we've talked about this before. The, The data center links are. Uh, database replication, things like that. You know, no company like Google of Google's massive size is in a single data center. So you have to replicate your databases from your data center in Seattle to your data center in Dallas to your data center in Singapore. And yep, those transports go across the uh, the uh, well. I don't, I don't want to say the public internet. They go across leased lines from companies like Level Three. And if Level Three says to uh, if the NSA says to Level Three, hey, let's just put a little tap in here, a little fiber optic splitter. Oh, and by the way, you can't tell anyone we're doing this. Yeah. They're going to get everything. This is what you you figured this out. I want to give you credit. Long before this came out, you said they must be upstreaming. This was the way to do it. Yep. Yes, if, yeah, exactly. If I mean, and and this further demonstrates, I think, that 
that those companies were as, as were telling the truth. I mean, there's still this unknown about some of the language and some of the slides, which implies that the companies that were working were knowingly working with the NSA. I, I don't think we are ever going to know definitively what was actually going on, but you know, from the outcry from these companies. And, and you know, and, and remember, we've also talked about some of the reactions that the employees have had. I mean, they were furious yeah. when they learned that this was going on. I mean, you know, <laughs> they were using words we can't say on the podcast. So, yeah. Yeah. And as far as I know, Google is not yet encrypting their inter-data center links. They are oh, on I it. they were. No, ah. no, they're, um, that, because that's a big that that's a big deal. I mean, it, it, it. I mean, they're they're absolutely working on it hard, as we reported. I think it was last week, but it's it's gonna it's gonna take a little bit of doing because it's it's a big problem. I love it, and this is always the case that our local uh, internet service provider, SonicNet, my good friend uh, Dane Jasper, yeah. owns that green all the green way all the way, and also. Uh, Spider Oak, which you've recommended before yes. as a Dropbox alternative, green all the way yes. across. Yes. Yeah, that's good. And But on the other hand, so is Dropbox. Yeah, yeah good okay. for Dropbox. Yep. Late to the game, but they did it 100%. Of course, they still yeah. have your keys to your data, so. Uh, yeah, they are not TNO. And that's the other thing I wish. Oh, where's the TNO? Nice? I know. Wouldn't that be nice to have a TNO column there? But nope. Would be nice. That would that, that would be nice. That's yeah. what people have to listen think, to this show for. I think at some point I'm going to have to revisit the cloud storage. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of work, <laughs> frankly, to pull all that together as I did once when we did the the big cloud storage provider podcast. But um, and people are now asking me constantly about this or that instant messaging because I mean, as exactly as we predicted, there the the upshot of these privacy revelations is a huge, you know, influx of new secure services that are being offered. So it's like, uh, okay, you know, and people are saying, well, what about this one? What about this one? I mean, the problem is it takes serious work to determine exactly what people are doing. And when you've got someone like, um, uh, shoot, uh, BitTorrent not telling you right. what their protocol is, although... There is an open source BitTorrent client for BitTorrent, uh, BitTorrent Sync. Sync. Ah. Yes, and so that's going to give us ah. they're they're reverse engineering the protocol, and so they're, they're, the open sourceness of the of the BitTorrent Sync client will give us a, a, a wedge into how Sync is working. Um, I don't think they have it done yet, but uh, they're on the way. Okay, so <sighs> patent trolls. You know, we've talked about patents. This made me so sad. This is the new the new egg trial. Yes. You get Whit Diffie coming in saying, oh. I invented public key oh. cryptography. Well, actually that 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 I I sent a link when when ours reported that and I said to my Twitter followers, read down at least until down to. Anyway, so so here's the background. We've got this guy, Eric. Spandenberg, who is, he sets up shell corporations. He's got nine of them that he owns, and apparently a total of 22 of them owned by family members. And and so this one 
is known as TQP Development. And it, it owns the rights to one patent, which has long since expired, by the way. It's no longer even a valid patent. So the technology it protects, which was for, to, it, it was for modems back in the modem days, a means of cryptographically protecting the data that modems were exchanging. And so, so the, 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 what's, what's sad here is all of the evidence viewed by somebody, I mean, like viewed by the industry that knows what's going on is that the patent was never valid. That, that, that it, that, that what, the rights that it were was that it had granted were already in use in and in the public domain well they were already actively in use thus constituting prior art and prior art renders a patent invalid i mean it's prior art technology cannot be patented that's why i immediately published the fundamental and and i have continued to publish all of the protocols that Squirrel is using because the act of publishing it renders it unpatentable. No, it's now in the public domain. Nobody can have it, which is the way something like this should be. Okay, so this company, this Eric Spandenberg with his TQP development, purchased the patent from its originator, for three quarters of a million dollars, so, so okay, that's that's a chunk of money. He has then gone around and sued nearly a hundred and forty different companies, generating a total of forty five million three hundred and seventy thousand dollars, because the companies have capitulated rather than challenging the patent. His claim is that that this patent covers the combination of using the RC4 cipher with SSL. And as we know, until recently, when RC4 has fallen into disfavor, um, many companies were using RC4 and SSL. So even though this patent has expired... His suit alleges that that internet commerce that, that that the inventor foresaw the whole future of internet commerce. Okay, back in the this was a Rockwell modem that this thing was. It was a way of retrofitting firmware in a Rockwell modem to to just create a, a secure point to point link. Nothing to do with the interface with the internet. Nothing to do with packet switching technology. I mean, nothing to do with commerce at all. So he's saying that, that, that any large internet commerce companies were infringing the patent before it expired and therefore owe them money. Um, a mutual fund, Dodge and Cox, was sued and paid a little over $25,000. Um, the Pentagon Credit Union paid $65,000. QVC 
paid $75,000. MLB Advanced Media paid $85,000. PetSmart paid $150,000. PMC, $400,000. Cigna paid $425,000. Bank of America, $450,000. First National, $450,000. Visa paid half a million dollars. Amazon paid this guy half a million dollars. UPS, $525,000. IBM, three quarters of a million dollars. Alliance Insurance, $950,000. And Microsoft paid him a million dollars. Notice that all these sums are less than the estimated million and a half it costs to fight it. And that's one yes. of the reasons patent trolling works. These companies, yes, it's they just made yes. a simple business decision. Well, it's even a yes. million dollars is less than it would cost to defend it. Yes, and it, I, I'm I'm thrilled that Newegg, despite the fact yes. that it's cost them millions, and now they have lost for another couple of million, uh, decided to fight it. But the, but you understand why it's a bad business decision. <laughs> yes, it, it exactly is. The good news is they have a T-shirt we can buy uh, for. <laughs> To help to help support their cause, but to give you an idea, so now, how does this work for the patent troll? The patent they're called patent trolls, first of all, because they're not using the patent. Non-practicing not, entities is the yes, more, exactly. more official term, I guess. Yes, they they this guy, this Spandenberg, bought the intellectual property rights simply to have grounds to sue, not because that he was using the patent and wanted exclusive rights to what it was protecting. I mean, it was all it's, all, it's obsolete, has been for a long time. And there were many other ways to skin this cat than using RC4. Um, so so the, the deal with the original inventor, the inventor gets, get this, Leo, 2.5% of any money recovered plus $350 an hour as a consulting fee. So far, the inventor has made $588,000 while Spandenberg keeps the rest. Now, arguably, more, than, more than $40 million that he's keeping. That's his. Yes, yes, exactly. So now you know why people do this. Exactly. You could swallow so, a lot of ethics for $40 million. So Newegg says no. Newegg has been sued before and has always said no. They won't do this. So so the the drama here, which occurred just recently, is when expert witnesses who, who were whose job it was to explain the technology to the jury. This was a jury trial, as opposed to just explaining this to a judge. They took the stand. First, we have Ron Rivest, the, the, the R of RSA, who testifies via a videotaped deposition about how he invented the RC4 cipher while he was at RSA security in 1987, two years pr prior to the TQP patent application. So then we get former Microsoft CTO, this chief technology officer, Ray Ozzie, who described demonstrating Lotus Notes 
to Bill Gates in 88. And Lotus Notes used the same technology. Alan Eldridge, who worked on the Notes product, flew down to Marshall, Texas. This is where this was happening in East Texas in person um, and wasn't paid because he felt he was doing his civic duty to, to, to keep this travesty from happening. He flew down to describe how he put Rivest's RC4 cipher in the Lotus Note software. So it was in a product, in use practically, and in commerce, all of which invalidates its use, it, it invalidates it, it being the subject of a patent. Okay. Finally, on Friday of last week, New Egg's, New Egg's star witness, the person we talk about often, Whitfield Diffie of Diffie-Hellman fame, you know, the, the, the Diffie-Hellman key agreement that, you know, key um, uh, cryptographer takes the stand. Um, Diffie's goal was to knock out the so-called Jones patent because this was some guy named Jones was the, the guy who added this. And I have to say, I've looked at the patent and, I mean, it is nice. It, it is nice technology. It's not junk. It's, it, it is, you know, honest to goodness, really good encryption for a point-to-point connection between two modems. It's good, but it wasn't first. And that's the key. It, you know, and it was and what it what it patented and what they're suing everybody over was already in use before. So, um, you know, and, and with Diffie, there's a picture. I don't think uh, there's there's a link further down, Leo, uh, to the Ars Technica story. I think it's the New Egg Trial crypto legend yeah. Diffie takes yeah. a stand. Yeah, Wit looks like uh, like a, oh. a mad wizard. I think is <laughs> he probably, does. This, you know, it, you it, shall not pass. It, if you put Endeldorf's or whatever his name is <laughs> cap on his head, it, you, it, it, it's totally convincing. Yeah, Endeldorf, really? <laughs> Gandalf. Gandalf. Oh, okay. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I like Endeldorf, though. We'll have to create okay. a character. He's the guy. Whitdiff. He's a guy on the left, by the way. The lawyer. Oh, the guy yeah. Right. You can tell who's the attorney <laughs> and and who is who invented. But you know, and, and I have to tell you, in Marshall, Texas, that is a little bit of a strike against him. He looks like a hippie. Well, he looks like an, an eccentric genius. What what I've been told about these juries, and one of the reasons these companies pursue this in East Texas, a very conservative jury. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and they, you know, they really, um, they want to, they want to help the little guy against a big, the big companies. You know, that's really <laughs> okay. where this is so, coming from. So they feel like the little guy's getting ripped off, you know? Yep. So, so, so the, uh, uh the attorney Albright for Newegg says, uh, we've heard, a, he says, we've heard a good bit in this courtroom. I'm quoting from the, from the transcript in this bit in a good bit in this courtroom about public key encryption says albright are you familiar with that and diffie says yes i am um (laughs) in what surely qualifies as the biggest understatement of the trial and then albright says and how is it that you're familiar with public key encryption to which diffie replies i invented it (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's good. And then, I mean, you would just think it was like, okay, this is done. So then the the plaintiff attorney gets up, Mark Fenster, who's the lawyer for TQP, and says to Whit Diffie, "You never completed a master's degree, did you?" And Diffie says, "That's correct." Other than the honorary degree, you don't have an earned doctorate or PhD, correct? And Diffie says, that is correct. And even though he taught a few courses, you never had a real professorship, correct? Asked Fenster. And Diffie says, I never had a full-time academic job. No. So, um, and then Fenster, of course, notes that although Diffie was testifying in court for the first time, he had other expert witness work lined up. His rate varies from $500 to $600 per hour, and it's $700 for testifying in court. And Newegg lost. Yeah. And this, Leo, is why I've stopped agreeing to be an expert witness. I did that for a while, years ago, and it was this kind of event. I would... I would only testify if I was on the side that that would like should win because that's me and uh, and the the most the most annoying lawsuit that I was involved in I testified on behalf of NEC who had the famous multisync display and they were being sued by Princeton Graphics Systems because NEC's advertising were saying this is the last monitor you'll ever need to buy because because of the multi-syncness of it, it it could handle whatever different resolution you gave it, which was phenomenal at the time. Now we just sort of take it for granted. Back then, that was a big deal. So Princeton Graphics Systems was suing NEC for their statement because the PS2 had just come out and you didn't need to buy a new monitor. You could use the old multi-sync that essentially just worked because it was smarter. And so I very carefully tried to explain to the judge, this was not a jury trial, this was just me and the judge, who had a green oxygen tank next to him. Um, and, you know, <laughs> he remembered when, you know, horses pulled carriages. Uh, so I was trying to explain to this guy why the way this worked meant that NEC's ads were correct. And they lost. And I just was like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. This is just too annoying, the fact that the system is that broken. So the in this in this back to um Newegg's trial, the the plaintiff was claiming five point one million dollars in, da- in in damages and who knows what. I didn't look at the detail of the suit. So it may have been, you know, uh, damages and other forms of upset. They were awarded by the jury 2.3, so a little less than half, but still $2.3 million. But as I said, Newegg has lost before and they have always won on appeal. So they are going to appeal this. Because and, that moves uh, it to a different venue. It moves it out of Marshall, Texas. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and then Saner heads prevail 
Um, but anyway, I, I like this. I wanted to share the details of this because, you know, we've talked about patents and patent trolls. And here's a, it's a classic example. I mean, you couldn't, you could, you know, basically this brought the industry's top gurus out of hiding. You know, this is, you know, Diffie's never testified in court before. This was his first testimony as an expert witness about what he did and when. And, you know, it didn't matter. So I I think it will because yes I I think yeah, I'm glad they're when, fighting yeah oh absolutely am yeah um and and, and it is the case that at, at Newegg they have a T-shirt you can get which is is neat they it's don't have a, extra uh, large though they only have skinny sizes ah whoops <laughs> they need more pro maybe they sold out already I bet you I just yeah. you took the words out of my mouth <laughs> yeah I bet the, I bet the big ones the big ones are sold out yes yes. So, um, over the weekend, over the weekend, I guess it was, um, no, this week, because where are we with this is Wednesday? I guess it was over the weekend, late in the weekend. And in the beginning of the week, I, it occurred to me that I, w we've been getting a huge number of, of questions about, about crypto locker, you know, uh, Will it, you know, will it affect a drive that has a, you know, like, you know, what level of drive mapping? If it has a drive letter, what what if it's available but it's not mapped? You know, uh, does Sandboxy in fact protect this? You know, what kind of a virtual machine do I need? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a huge amount of anxiety because it's a huge problem. And I finally decided that we have a super savvy audience of listeners people would probably like to play with it. So first, I put it up in a, in a, in a non-public directory on GRC and announced its availability through Twitter and, and then sent people back links. And there was a lot of interest there. So I decided to formalize this and to make, an old version and a new version available on GRC. So if anyone wants to experiment with CryptoLocker, I mean, this is, this is deadly. This is not neutered or, you know, it's not, it hasn't had its fangs removed. This is the, the live CryptoLocker malware, both an early version, which is highly detected by existing anti-malware software and a and the most recent one which is not yet very well detected i think it's seven out of 47 um anti-malware that virus total tests detect it but the balance don't so anyway grc.com slash malware that will take you to a page where i explain what's going on and the dangers and i have in text, not clickable links, the location of three different zip files, because I also threw in a, a, um, the, the banking Trojan, Zbot, or Zeus, that we've talked about often, which is a rootkit Trojan that I thought people might want to experiment with also. Uh, they, they are in encrypted zip files, so you must use a password in order to decrypt the zip file in order to get access to it 
Um, I, my only, I mean, I, I recognize this is a mixed blessing. This is, you know, this is dangerous, but I, based on the feedback I got through Twitter, I know that a chunk of the listenership of this podcast would love to set up a sandboxy already. Um, Jason, who is, who tweets from alien CG, uh, and there, and there, there's a link to his report from the weekend. He played with it a lot, and a number. I got a whole bunch of other feedback from people who were enjoying the opportunity. Many people wanted to verify that their anti-malware would detect it. The good news is, for example, Microsoft Security Essentials detects this. It doesn't detect it in the zip because the zip encryption is very good. As we know, something that is well encrypted is pseudo-random noise. There is nothing to lock onto in an encrypted zip which is why this is one of the ways it's being distributed. Uh, it's, but the second it emerges from the zip, if you've got real-time monitoring on in Microsoft Security Essentials, it just nails it. I was playing with it myself on a, on a completely isolated computer in order to, to create these zip files and to get their, their SHA-256 um, hashes and, and so forth to put this page together. Um, so I was pleased to see that it is being caught immediately. Uh, so you'll need to turn off those defenses if you want to, you know, w- watch it go and and see it do its stuff. But I thought it was on balance more useful to let people verify their defenses and also experiment with containment. As I was gonna, as I was mentioning, Jason verified that Sandboxy does indeed protect from CryptoLink, <laughs> CryptoLink, CryptoLocker. <laughs> Um, it uh, what what he found was that encrypted copies of the files that existed on his system were appearing inside the sandbox exactly as we would as as we would predict. So anytime Sandboxy detected that a write was trying to be made, it cre- essentially created it in the sandbox so that so that CryptoLocker saw the encrypted file but nothing outside was affected. And when you deleted the sandbox, you completely deleted all of the encrypted files. So anyway, grc.com slash malware. Um, if, if I get in trouble from search engines for having that there, as some people have cautioned me I might, then I may have to take it down. Uh, but I hope, I, I don't think I will because they are not. there are no active links on the page. You have to manually copy and paste and then remove spaces that I put on either side of the forward slashes. And only then do you get a completely safe to download zip. And that you need to use a password to, to decrypt the uh, contents inside. And oh, and I say it on the page, but be sure to delete the decrypted executable once you're through messing with it. Do not leave it around. I did not change the name of the XE because executables can check their own name and I wanted to leave it as it was received in case the executable did check to see whether its own name had been like renamed to something like, you know, horrible crypto locker virus do not run that kind of thing, which I would have liked to do, but uh, it might've changed its behavior. So I decided not to, there is a new version of crypto prevent, uh, over at the at the foolishit.com site, 
Uh, I link to it in the show notes if anyone's interested, or you can probably just put crypto prevent into Google and it will find it there. And interestingly, the file format has been reverse engineered now. That is the the format of the encrypted files. One of the things that many people have asked is if if you ran CryptoLocker on an already encrypted file, would it double encrypt it? Would, would it re-encrypt it? And it looks like the authors have been careful to prevent that. The other thing we heard when, remember that there was that service they were offering, <laughs> service, unquote, um, where you could pay them more and you you uploaded a copy or you, you uploaded one of the encrypted files and it would then, it would provide you with the, 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 what, what you needed in order to decrypt it. Um, or I guess maybe it would decrypt it itself. I don't remember exactly how the, the, how it worked, but the fact that they wanted a copy of the file told us that there was a header of some sort on the file which it could use. That is, it wasn't just the file encrypted, otherwise it couldn't do anything with it. And sure enough, this has now been reverse engineered. There is a 20-byte cookie in the form of an SHA-1 hash, 160-bit hash, on the front of the file followed by um, the, the, that file's AES key encrypted with, with 2048-bit RSA. So again, this is very good cryptography, unfortunately, which CryptoLocker has, has, has employed. They're I think the, using, uh, pot, the uh, patent troll should sue them over that. That's terrible. That's an infringement of TCP, TCPQ's <laughs> patent. Go after them. Go, boy. Sick them. That's good way to spend their their treasure <laughs> chest yes <laughs> well we know they're deep these uh the guys on the other end have deep pockets right yep making lots yep. of money on crypto locker so um so so a pseudo random a pseudo random key is generated per file which i didn't realize but that's again that's the way you'd want to do it a pseudo random key is generated per file that key is encrypted using the um public key and that's stuck at the at the front of the file so the encrypted files will all grow by i don't know like like about 256 maybe 266 or so bytes and that header is crucial for decrypting the file so anyway the the point of this is there is now a third party decryptor um someone named cryus K-R-K-Y-R-U-S has reverse engineered the, the crypto locker malware to determine how the file format works and has built an open source decryption engine. Now, you still need to go get the key and you have to pay for it first. But we've heard reports of, for example, the decryption process crashing before it's finished. You know, and we were joking that they weren't as worried about uh, creating a bulletproof decryptor as they were an encryptor. So this cryus-tech.com does have a free open source decryptor, which also fully documents the file format um, and has and shows the reverse engineering of the encryption process to create decryption. So if anyone 
you know, only got a partial decryption of their documents, uh, this would probably handle the balance very well, I would think. And I noted also since the podcast, um, the latest versions of CryptoLocker have decreased the ransom to <laughs> half a Bitcoin in response to the still going mass- up, <laughs> yes, the, the massively crazy price of of a single Bitcoin. It's it's and and I don't know if we talked about it on the air or not, but for the first time today, Leo, it went north of a thousand dollars. Why Bitcoin. is that? Do you think? I don't know. I I think it's legitimacy. I think it's it's. I mean, it's all, all, only thing I can think is that it's it is beginning to acquire legitimacy. Hmm. Because people selling bitcoins would tend to drive the price down. People buying them would tend to drive the price up. And so it must be that people are believing that there is a long term future. And so they're moving they're moving cash into Bitcoin, looking at purely speculatively. Yeah, so it could be a bubble. Yeah, although you know, if you look at it over the last month, it's you know it has spiked and it's 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 and then there has been a a drop off as people have been liquidating their Bitcoin assets, driving the price down, but it continues to recover. And I think we're about two days away from a difficulty increase. The whole. The, the whole system is going to reevaluate itself and uh, and reset the difficulty level for so the, now's the time to get your Bitcoin, Bitcoin. miner uh, <laughs> fired up. But real Leo, really think of all of the people who have some serious money because they were mining early and and with any luck they were holding on to their bitcoins. Oh my goodness! You saw I mean, the guy my little... whose hard drive uh, had seventy yes. five hundred bitcoins on it, and he yes. threw it away. And now he's going it, through the landfill. It's a landfill, <laughs> and 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 the guys at the landfill think, well, it's probably three or four feet down based on uh, when you think it was. And it's like, oh <laughs> goodness, four feet of rubbish. But it's worth uh, what three quarters of a million dollars? No more than that. Seventy five hundred bitcoins. Wow. Uh, that's seven point five million, right? Oh yes. I'd I'd look through some landfill for seven five million. Oh wow! Ouch. And did you hear the story? His girlfriend was complaining that the laptop was making too much noise. And James yes. Howells. Seventy five hundred bitcoins created in two thousand nine. Yeah. So mm-hmm. back in the early days when a laptop running by itself had a chance. I remember I just had my my one machine and like on the third day I came out it's like oh look there's 50 it made for me and of course I reported it on the podcast like hey yeah. Leo, I got 50 bitcoins they were worth you know 450 bucks at that point $50,000 they're worth now wow wow yeah. anybody wants to give me bitcoins I'll take them we have a bitcoin donation <laughs> QR code on our front page <laughs> I have seven people have donated seven bitcoins that's that's good that's good money I'll take it Seven grand. Total of. The problem with all of this stuff is you don't know when to sell it. Uh, Is it at its peak? Is it just beginning? Are you going to be like the guy who bought the pizza pie for what is now worth several million dollars in bitcoins? Or are you going to be the guy who (laughs) rides it all the way down? I think it's a legitimate currency. I think that's what we're seeing. I think, I mean, as I said before, these, these radical fluctuations are just because it's very volatile. It's it's so young. Yeah. It's it's very young. Nothing has really established the price. 
it just needs more inertia behind it. So, yeah, wow, mm. fun. Now, our old fun, our old friends, Pogo Plug. We were using Pogo Plug for quite a while. Uh, have a new product, which is kind of cool. It's called Safe Plug, and it is forty nine dollars, and it's a little box. It's an appliance. It's Tor in a box. Oh, that's to, interesting. Isn't that cool? Um, Giga Ohm carries the story. I looked for it over on, on Pogo Plug's site, and all they wanted to do was get me to log in. But I, so I, and they didn't have any other information that was visible. But I know a few things about it from, from the Giga Ohm story. It's $49. It is a little appliance, like a little, you know, one of these, like, like a little Apple TV box or a little, you know, random internet appliance. So you plug it into your router. And essentially, it's got Linux running in it and Tor all pre-configured and ready to go. So you then, you, you run your network through it then to your router and, and you're anonymized. Well, and remember, we need to, that's why I'm a little concerned about them overselling this. Because remember that anonym, anonymity requires more than just bouncing through Tor. Because, for example, cookies will de-anonymize you, um, and you need to have cookies in order to maintain persistent state with a site. So, you know, what would be interesting is if each of these safe plugs were a Tor node itself. Actually, they are. You uh, can you can also you can also set them up so that they are a Tor node. Because the risk with use- Tor is the Fed's co- co-opting a Tor node. Yes. An entrance or an exit point, particularly. Yes. But you've got the entrance point. It's yours. And if yes. it's a random set of... If they sold a million of these safe plugs... I know. It would massively expand the Tor network and, and, and make it so diffuse that it would no longer be feasible to, um, to, to watch exit nodes. They'd all become exit nodes. Right. That'd yeah, just pick a cool. random safe plug as an exit node. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I like the idea. Um, so in order to solve the problem of some sites n- balking at using Tor, for example, banks often tie their authentication to your IP address. So if you suddenly appear to be coming from, you know, somewhere, some other country than you're known to be in, the bank will say, ah, uh, no. So, so there is software that they include that allows you to whitelist based on URLs. So for example, you're able to to not you're automatically your traffic will automatically not go through Tor if you're going to any of your whitelisted sites. And what's very cool is you can whitelist by browser. They use the user oh, agent that's a good idea. the user agent header to to either route through Tor or not. So you could set up Firefox, for example, to be your your Tor-based browser, and Chrome would be direct high-speed access. Because that's the other thing, is running through Tor does slow things down. You can't stream video conveniently and so forth because it just, you know, you, there is a, a, a lot of, of temporal overhead associated with bouncing from one node to the other, as we've discussed before, and all the crypto work that's being done on the fly. So, <clears throat> so, Anyway, safe plug, fifty bucks from uh, from the Pogo plug people. It Just, also uh, has uh, ad blocking software built in. Yep, yep. 
Which it would have to, right? Because that could be a, a way of tracking you. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you want to use a clean browser. You, you, you'd want to run your browser in in the in incognito you know Firefox yeah. exactly yeah. In, in, yeah. in in incognito mode with a fresh instance and it's going to flush its stuff away and and so forth so that you don't if you know depending upon what level of anonymity you want but um, I, I think it's very cool Neat. now I don't know Leo <laughs> how this escaped me but here's the warning to our listeners who like science fiction. Give yourself three hours. Do not watch the first episode. There's only three so far. In in any situation where you do not have time, because you will not be, you will not have any choice. I am stunned by the quality of this. It's got an eight point six rating on IMDb. Nothing is eight point six on IMDb. It's Fox's new series, Almost Human. Really. It is. I thought that was for kids. Fabulous. No, <laughs> no. It's not for kids. It's fabulous. Um, it's set in the near future, year twenty forty eight, which of course is nice because that's a nice power of two. Um, so, and and it's not feasible that we're going to have androids in twenty forty eight, but they do. Um, but oh my goodness, if all you have to do is watch the first one, you if you watch the first one. You have no choice. It is it is really good. So it's un. I don't know how they're going to keep it up. In fact, the reviews I've read of the first one, the the reviewers were saying if they continue this, it's the guy J.J. Uh, Abrams was involved, but it's not J.J. It's someone else who's like tied to J.J. I didn't do the research to figure it out, but it's but I mean it's it's a win. So they've, three episodes have been aired. It airs Monday nights on Fox. Um, the three episodes, as you would imagine, are being are well available on the Internet. You can use the Fox app in order to view them. Uh, you, it, it's all over the BitTorrent uh, uh, seating, so it's easy to find these. And wow, huh. the first one, will com- you will absolutely be addicted. I, I'm just... I watched all three last night. I, deliberately, I wanted to know whether it could be as good as I was reading, and I wanted to know for the podcast. And it kept me up too late because, and it's like, okay, I just, I just can't stop. So the good news is, you can, you're, you're limited to a three-hour binge at this point, and then I think it'll be on everyone's must-watch list. It's just, it's really good, and I'm not going to give any more away, um, except that it's, uh, you know, it's a. It's a police procedural procedural with a human and an android, but it's just done really well. The writing is great. It's very clever. I love it. And uh, while I'm on the topic, in, in miscellany, I'll just say that I, I've heard from other people who are glad that I mentioned the Showtime series Masters of Sex, which is a, a, a somewhat apparently accurate story of William Masters and Virginia Johnson, the, you know, the Masters and Johnson's story, but it's turning out to be a really well-written, worthwhile series on Showtime. So um, I'll I'll recommend that too. Um, 
And Leo, following your recommendation of using the at replies, I did some more research because I wanted to understand what was going on. And I found a man, a so-called man page. <laughs> we all know what, which. The man, there's a man page for how to use Twitter. Yes. Yes, a man page for Twitter. I created a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash tweetfmt. So all lowercase, T-W-E-E-T dot, I'm sorry, B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-W-E-E-T-F-M-T, tweet format. And uh, I found it useful. It's very concise and condensed. And, and actually, I tweeted it and a bunch of, I got a bunch of replies saying, hey, there's some stuff here I never knew about. So um, there, there is some cool, cool stuff there. Yeah. yeah. And that's our podcast. It's in a man page. Because that makes sense to people like you. Everybody else looks at it and goes, what the hell? <laughs> Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's where he puts all of the stuff, all his hard Work, including Spinrite, his bread and butter. If you want to get a copy of Spinrite, I highly recommend it for anybody who uses hard drives. GRC.com. He also has the uh, podcast there, 16 kilobit audio, the smallest audio version made, made available, as well as transcriptions in human readable and human writable text at GRC.com. If you do have a question for Steve, he does questions and answers whenever time allows at uh, GRC.com slash feedback. We also have high-quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash SN, or wherever your favorite netcasts are aggregated. Check it out at iTunes and places like that. We do the show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC on twit.tv. You can watch live. Uh, we will be moving uh, come January uh, 8th to uh, actually be January 7th to Tuesday, right, at 11 a.m. Pacific. Right. 2 p.m. Eastern time. So that's uh, the first week of January, our new time. And I think that's uh, that's about it. I thank you, Steve Gibson, for being um, here. L- Elaine is going to be digesting turkey. So uh, she said that they, um, excuse me, her transcript may be a day late. Um, I'm because I want to put all these links up and make them available. As soon as I have access to the audio here in a few hours, I will make a point of of getting the entry for the the Security Now page for this podcast, 432, up on GRC with the return of the show notes as part of our weekly offering so that people can scroll through and, uh, and follow the links that we provide. Excellent. And uh, a correction, it is 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays right. after Mac Break Weekly. I got that wrong. Uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, 2100 UTC, starting in 2014. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security.